Well, this morning is the Sunday that's closest to Christmas. And as I mentioned, I won't be with you the Sunday after Christmas. And so we're going to, to take a break from 2 Samuel. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy. And as you're turning, if your Bible gets stuck in 2 Samuel, just keep going. Go past all of the major prophets and the minor prophets, past the Gospels, the epistles of Paul. These are the last series of Paul's epistles in order in the New Testament, the pastoral epistles. And our text is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. But I'm going to read just a bit more than that for context. So we're going to begin in verse 12. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that You would open up Your word for Without the power of your Spirit, we are unable to see the depths of your Word. We are unable to learn what you would have us to learn. And so we ask that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That even as we study this passage from the Apostle Paul, we would see Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. What is Christmas all about? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, we could look at the wider culture and be discouraged to see why some celebrate Christmas. We think about Santa Claus and presents and shopping and parties. But if we even look to the church our view of what Christmas is about can still be limited. We think about baby Jesus, the shepherds with fuzzy little lambs, angels who are singing, wise men who are traveling. Is Christmas really about a cute and encouraging spectacle? About making us feel warm and happy inside? No, we celebrate Christmas because it is a monumental event. 
in the history of the universe. It is when God came down and became man. At Christmas, we remember when God changed everything. When he gave us hope. When he gave us the greatest gift of all. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this Christmas, I'd like to take a look at Paul's great declaration of the reason for Christmas. Why is it that Jesus was born? And in this one verse, this one simple declaration, Paul shows us three things. First, he shows us the nature of the reason for Christmas. And then secondly, he shows us the person who is the reason for Christmas. And then finally, he shows us the result of the reason for Christmas. Let's begin then by looking at the nature of the reason for Christmas. Now, a brief note on context here as we have jumped into the middle of 1 Timothy 1. We haven't been going through this book consecutively. So we need to understand and know that Paul is making this declaration from a place of extreme gratitude. He is reflecting on whom he once was in verse 13. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent of the gospel. And he is now reflecting on who he has become, we see in verse 12, a servant of the living God. And so Paul describes for us in this saying, which is a way of reminding us that this pithy declaration is something that was quotable or memorizable by much of the church. What he says to us here is what it means for him and for us that Christ came. He tells us first that this saying is trustworthy. That's the first part of the nature of this reason. It is inherently trustworthy. Now, the word here for trustworthy is a familiar Bible word. It, we see it often in the Bible. Its root is the word for faith or believing or trusting. And it is added as a description of the saying. That means that this saying is faithful. It is believable. It is trustworthy, Paul says. This saying is able to be counted on. Because what Paul is about to tell us, and what we should know, is a common truth, a saying, something we can trust. It's not a dishonest pitch made to fool us and deceive us. Have, have you ever had the occasion to go shopping for something, maybe a car or some electronic equipment or some kitchen gadget, and you go out and a salesman begins to tell you how this is the greatest thing on the face of the earth, and it will solve all your problems, and it will never break down. It's so sturdy, and now it's perfect, and I, you can't do without it. And then you bring it home, and let's just say it doesn't quite meet expectations. You know, there's one company that says that all of their products just work until they don't, and you have to fix them. 
or get rid of them or replace them. That's not what Paul is doing here. This is no salesman's pitch. It's not a misrepresentation of the reality of the world. It's not Paul trying to promote something for his own selfish purposes. He's not trying to hide the truth. No, this saying is trustworthy because it's true. It's a short and simple declaration. You can rely upon it. We might put it this way. Paul is telling us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this truth, we will see, is about the most important matters in your life. Matters of eternal significance. It's true that whenever the stakes are high, we want to know the truth. We don't want to be fooled. We don't want to be given glad news that isn't true or real. We want to know what we're up against. We want to know what we need to do. We need someone who will shoot straight with us. And that's what Paul gives you here. A word that you can rely on. Well, there's a second characteristic of this reason for Christmas. A second part of its nature. And that is, Paul tells us, that it is deserving of full acceptance. This phrase is three Greek words translated properly by three English words. And it is a unique phrase only used here and also by Paul in chapter 4, verse 9. But this phrase expands on and applies the trustworthiness and the truth of Paul's statement to us. First, Paul tells us that it is deserving. That means the statement is true in and of itself for all time and for all people. It's just as true for you and for me as it was for the people that Paul wrote this to or that who heard it read in their churches. There's no change at all. And the truth of this statement doesn't depend on your worldview, on your knowledge or quite frankly, even on your agreement with it. It is something that has been weighed in the balance and found valuable. That's what this word deserving means, to weigh something in the balance and to see it as being worthy. As we think about this statement, we have to understand that this statement judges us more than we judge it. Well, the second word that Paul uses is acceptance. And this tells us what this statement is worthy of. It's worthy of approval. It's worthy of acceptance. We are to receive this statement and take it to heart. This statement is not just something that's true. It's practical. It's useful. It's important for you and for me. But it's not any old kind of acceptance. There's that third word here in the phrase, full. Now, this means that it's a statement that's not for half measures. It's worthy of full acceptance. You may think of an occasion when you were going out to dinner with your husband or your wife or a friend. And you're having this discussion, where should we go to eat? And... The other person suggests a restaurant, and you respond with something like this. Yeah, I think I could eat there. 
I could probably find something on the menu. Yeah, I mean, I don't know it's my favorite place, but I could go there. That's not the kind of acceptance Paul's talking about here. That's halfway acceptance. This would be, if this is possible, you responding, that's my favorite restaurant in the world. I've memorized their menu. I can't wait to get there. Let's go now. Full acceptance. There's no reservation. It's all encompassing. We are to accept this declaration with no reservation, no qualification, no possibility that it will be anything other than the complete truth and a representation of reality. So this is the nature of the reason for Christmas. As you listen, remember that it is faithful and true, worthy of your full acceptance and belief. That brings us to the second thing. The reason itself, the saying that Paul gives to us. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now Paul is going to give us this saying and that we need to trust and believe. And this reason is divided into two parts. Even though it's a short statement, there are two parts to it. First, we are going to be introduced to the person who is the reason for Christmas. Paul doesn't leave us wondering or hanging. He begins with the person. The saying is, quote, Christ Jesus came into the world. There's no need for a buildup. There's no need for any explanation. Paul gets right to the point. Christmas is about Jesus. Now, perhaps this doesn't surprise you. You would say, Pastor, of course it is. It's Jesus' birthday. That's what Christmas is. But we can often get caught up in all the details of the Christmas story. The story of the angels with Mary and Joseph. And what was the deal with the census? Why did Mary and Joseph have to travel all that way? out of their town to another town. And, and where did they exactly sleep when they got there? Was the baby really laid in a drinking trough for animals? And were there animals all around them as they slept and lived there? And when did it really happen? Is December 25th the right day? Or is there some other day? And, and does that even matter? No. Paul wants you to focus on none of that. He wants you to focus on Christ Jesus. And the emphasis here is not on what Jesus looked like or whether he cried as a baby, but who he is. He is a real flesh and blood person, just like you and me. He's not an ideal not a concept, not an ideology to follow or to live up to. No, he is a person who was born into history in a real time and real place, even if we don't know all the details. Now, this is so true of many people throughout history. We don't doubt that Julius Caesar existed even though we don't know all the details of his birth and life. 
We don't doubt that Shakespeare was real and that wrote, he wrote plays, even though to some extent we're not even sure who Shakespeare was. There is a controversy about that. We don't have doubts about Napoleon and all the effect that he had on the history of Europe. And yet we don't know much about Napoleon and his birth and his upbringing and his parents and his early life. But we know that they're real. So is Jesus. And this is important because the history and reality of Christmas links with all of the history of Jesus. He was real. He lived. He ministered to others. He went to the cross and died. He rose again. Now, why is this so important? What is so unique about Christ Jesus? It's because of who He is. He's Christ Jesus. He is the Christ that is the Messiah, God's chosen one. The mediator between God and man. That is, He is the Christ, the anointed one, anointed by God to fulfill the will of God. We see this over and over again in the Bible. One instance is when the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But He's not just Christ. He's also Jesus, Paul tells us. That is, Yeshua in the Hebrew, which means God saves. This name was not random. It wasn't given to Jesus by chance. No, God himself told Joseph that the child's name shall be Jesus. As a reminder of God's salvation. And Paul tells us something so significant about this birth. On the one hand, it was a birth like others. Those that we know and experience there was pain, and there was blood, there was exhaustion. The Bible tells us that Jesus is fully man. He ate, he got tired, he slept. He was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin, and he is therefore able to sympathize with us in our weakness. But Jesus is also fully God. And so this birth was like no other birth. We should expect that, because the Bible tells us that he had no human father, but Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul describes the unique nature of this birth with a phrase, came into the world. There is no one else that that could be said of. Every other human being was brought forth out of the world. Think about Adam, who was made a living soul. God formed him out of the dust and dirt of the earth. Think about Eve, who was formed from Adam's rib. Think about everyone else, you and me. We are brought forth out of what already exists in the world, your father, your mother, but not Jesus. He came into the world. 
Jesus is not a part of our world system. He is not a part of the cosmos. He is not contained by the world. He came from outside the world into it. He is unique. He is not restricted by creation. He is not a part of creation. There was never a time when he was not. And if the birth of Christmas gives us evidence of Jesus' humanity, then Paul also gives us evidence of his deity. This statement that Paul gives, came into the world, reflects what John says in John chapter 1, that the Word became flesh. Jesus is God. He is the Word. He is not flesh. He took on flesh for our sake. And that does not make Jesus less. No, he came into the world and took on flesh to redeem sinners. But you don't have to take Paul's word for it. Jesus uses very similar language in affirming his deity. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in John chapter 17, verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here we have set before us one person in two natures. Fully human. Fully divine. Christmas is about God the Son coming into the world. And of course, our next question then is, why did God the Son come into the world? And this is the third thing that we see, the result of the reason for Christmas. The good news for us is that because Paul's declaration is so short and so direct, we don't have to wait long for him to tell us. He gives us a phrase that is both the purpose and the result of Christmas. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The reason for Christmas is that Jesus would come into the world. But he came into the world for a reason. Jesus didn't come as a tourist. He didn't come to make an experiment. No, he came for a specific purpose. And that is summed up by Paul in two Greek words. Well, three in English. Sinners to save. Our English translation reads smoothly to save sinners. But in the Greek, Paul's emphasis is first on sinners. You can do that in Greek. It's an advantage over English. You can move words around for emphasis. Because in English, we get meaning and where words fit into a sentence by where they are in the order. Not so in Greek. And so it's the first word that Paul gives sinners that's the reason for Christmas now ironically that's the least popular reason in the world today some will allow for Christmas so that they can experience the Christmas spirit some want a time to focus on being nice to others and having others be nice to them some like to give and to get gifts 
But most do not want to hear that they are sinners who need saving. Yet that is what Christmas is all about. If there were no sinners, there would be no need for Christmas. And we are desperately in need of Christmas. From our first father Adam, we stand guilty as sinners. The scripture tells us that in Adam all sinned and all stand guilty before the living God. But yet, in case you're thinking to yourself, I won't take that guilt, Pastor. That's something somebody else did a long time ago. I'm not responsible for what Adam did. Then I ask you to think hard about your own life. In the past year, the past month, yesterday, did you sin? Were you perfect in every way, in thought, word, and deed? You see, our experience teaches us that we are sinners. And more than that, our experience teaches us that we are sinners who cannot be free from sin. That we are enslaved to sin. That even when we desire not to sin, we fall back into patterns of sin. Do you not know, Paul says, that if you present yourselves as anyone obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This morning, are you aware that you are a sinner? That every time you lie, even the smallest, even the whitest, you're sinning. That every burst of anger that you have, even those that you keep inside, is a sin. Every time you want something that someone else has, you are sinning. Has the reality of sin come home to you? I hope so. Not to discourage you, not to depress you, but to make you see the wonder and the majesty of Christmas. Because Paul doesn't just emphasize the word sinners. No, on the heels of that word comes that wondrous word to save. We need saving. We stand on the edge of eternity and judgment. The life that you live here is not all that there is. Upon your death, that is not the end. You were created as an eternal soul. And there is an eternal destiny that you must face. And eternity, my friends, is an awfully long time. One theologian described it. If you were on a beach with millions and billions of grains of sand, and every thousand years a bird came and took away one grain of sand, there would eventually be an end to that beach. But not so to eternity. Eternity is forever. And at the end of our days, we will be faced with either an eternity of judgment 
and wrath because of our sin. Or of hope, fellowship, and righteousness because of Jesus' work. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He suffered infinitely, eternally, only as He could because He was fully God. And so, do you see that in Christmas? Do you see your need of salvation? The hope that you would have. That's what Christmas is. It's the beginning of Jesus' saving work. Jesus took the wrath of God upon Himself, a wrath that you deserve, that you have bought and paid for, that you cannot get out of, that you cannot fast talk or argue or misdirect. And when you come before the judge of all who sees and knows all things. But Jesus died the just for the unjust. And Christmas is the evidence of that. The creator entered creation. The bread of life took on hunger. The light of the world entered darkness. And all of this was done so that you might be set free from sin. We celebrate Christmas because it shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ will leave nothing undone to bring those who believe in Him to glory. He will take on flesh and blood. He will suffer and die so that no one is left behind. If that is not the miracle of Christmas, I don't know what is. Christmas is a wonderful time of year. We gather with friends and family and rejoice and encourage one another. We take opportunities to show our love through food, gifts, and our time. But these are not the reason for Christmas. The reason for Christmas is the grace of God who saw our misery and our sin and for our sake gave the greatest gift of all. The gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is worth celebrating. Not just at Christmas, but every day. Will you join me in giving praise to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for Christmas? Will you go out from this place and tell others the reason for Christmas? Christmas is indeed a time of joy. Jesus has come that your joy may be full. Look to Jesus now. Let's pray.